Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. At the heart of this passage is a question. And the question is, is it possible to value or love something or someone too much? Is it possible to value or love someone or something too much so that something which is good becomes controlling, destructive and in the end spiritually evil? That's the question we're going to come back to as we go through this passage. This is one of the most personal, powerful and emotional passages that Paul ever wrote. It's a letter of friendship. The style of this letter is he is talking to friends. And when we see this passage where he talks about himself, he's not defending himself as he does in other places. He's, he's giving an example. He's giving, explaining his life and why he lives the way he does. It's, it's this fashionable phrase. It's speaking out of lived experience. And that's what we're going to be reading this morning. And it's a passionate warning and challenge and encouragement to the people he's writing and to us to the heart of the Christian life, which is simply to know and enjoy Christ. Which is what we did this morning. Thank you, Anna Healy, for leading us there so well. And Paul puts before us today the, the priceless value, the unsurpassing glory, and the eternal treasure of knowing Jesus Christ. That's the heart of this passage, what makes it so glorious, in comparison with which all earthly achievements, possessions and status are worthless, and even he comes to the point of calling them rubbish in comparison, because this is so glorious. But he's deeply concerned about two dangers, or traps, that can sidetrack us from knowing and experiencing Jesus like this. Firstly, he's concerned that we might fall back into some form of religion, believing that if we do certain things or don't do certain things or believe certain things that this will please God more or we will feel less guilty. Or he's worried they're going to get distracted by what he calls idols, which may well be a bigger danger for many of us. So we're going to look at these two traps, which is really what he's trying to warn us about in this passage. So first of all, those first few verses, one to three, where he talks about watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. He's not concerned that the Philippians will become Jews again. He's not concerned they're going to go back to the old religion. He's concerned that they want to add something to their Christian life. He's concerned that they're falling into the trap, that thinking if they add a certain practice or belief they will somehow be more acceptable. They will somehow belong more. Which, of course, was what circumcision is. It's the ultimate sign of being a Jew. So as Christians, they were being tempted to be drawn back into them. And, of course, Paul is not actually, interestingly, against these signs themselves. He's not against circumcision. He's against doing it for the wrong reason. In Galatians 5... Verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. 
Why is he so passionate about it? This is a, quite a rip-roaring passage. You know, when, he, when he describes Jews as dogs, that is the ultimate insult for a Jew. He cares a lot about this. Why? Well, he knows that if you add anything to Jesus, you end up with less than Jesus. If we add any effort, belief, we, to following Jesus, we nullify his gift of grace in our lives. For it is by grace we have been saved. And nothing of our own effort, Ephesians 2 verse 8. It is all and only Jesus. And that's what he wants us to know. He spells it out in verse 3. He talks about what our new identity is. He says, we are now worshippers in the whole of life. We are spirit-filled. We worship by the spirit. We glory in Christ Jesus. What he means by that is this wonderful combination of love and awe that he wants to call us friends. It draws out of us a sense of love and awe. He, the creator of the universe, wants to call you and me his friend this morning. And then we live joyfully dependent on him. These are the marks. This is the new identity of being a Christian. And none of that is down to us. This is our identity through and through to our deepest thoughts and feelings. I used to sometimes think that when the Bible talks about righteousness that we are given, it's like a cloak that sort of comes on us. So God sees us as righteous, though underneath we might still be a bit sinful and shameful. But we have this cloak. And he talks about a cloak of righteousness, that God sees us as righteousness, but somehow inside ourselves we feel that's not truly real. But that's not, of course, what it says. This gift of righteousness transforms us from the inside out. It's not just something that is put on that makes us look good to God. This is a transformation of all of us from the middle of our hearts all the way through, all the way out. Romans 8 verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is beyond understanding because we still live with our old self. We can't, we can't put the two together. But the Bible is clear. You and I are righteous this morning. There is no guilt. There is no shame. Because of what Jesus has done. And as you accept him, he cleanses our life and our conscience, it says. Not just our situation. So this morning, if you feel guilty, just, just for a moment, pause and just lift that to God and receive righteousness. Not just as a cloak but in your inner being, washing through you. Because that is who we are this morning. But human beings are inherently religious. You only have to look around the world to see that. Even secular humanists who would claim not to be religion, they have their beliefs, they have their practices. Secular humanism is just as much a religion as anything else. We all want to do something that makes us feel in control that makes us feel somehow better. But of course, that's a total myth. We're either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. There is no other category of human being because we're created beings. We don't have the power within us to master and run our own lives. So we end up either being run by the habits and the sins that we've given into, or we end up being run by righteousness. We are slaves to one or the other. We are creative beings. We all end up worshiping something 
or somebody. And I think deep underneath everyone knows that. Even these culture wars that are raging around us at the moment, on Twitter and so on, they're all about morality and virtue and big things, aren't they? They're not about just behaviour, they're people trying to justify who they are, that they are somehow righteous. So let's not add to our faith in Jesus. Rules or practices about what we eat or what we drink or where we go or what we do on certain days. All of these things may be good in themselves, but they have no moral or religious, uh, righteous value. Colossians 2.16 clearly says, don't judge others about these things, what they eat or drink or where they go. Because these things are but a shadow of the things to come. The reality is Christ. Amen. Superb verse, Colossians 2.16. These things are not completely wrong, but they're only a shadow of the things to come. The reality is Christ. Amen. And in these next few verses, Paul hammers this home out of his lived experiences. Verses 5 and 6. Because he was someone who followed this road of self-righteousness to the ultimate end. I don't think anyone else could claim they've tried harder than Paul tried to be zealous and righteous. So in verse 5, he talks first about his, his birth, his family, his education, his position in life, and how that made him feel righteous. He was born an Israelite, one of God's chosen people. Not only that, he was Benjamin, a special tribe. Not only that, he was a Pharisee, the greatest education and calling you could have as a Jew was to become a Pharisee and learn all about that. He was educated. He had status. He was born into the right sort of family. Some of us may feel we depend a bit on that. Well, Paul says it's a dead end. And then he goes on in verse 6 to talk about performance. He talks about how he was energetic. He wasn't just born into this. He embraced it zealously. He fought for his faith. He fought that by persecuting these Christians who were a sect of Judaism going into error, that he was being zealous for God. He, he, he did everything. He was totally committed to the truth. And he was faultless in following the rules. Performance. He did it to the end degree. Are we slipping into that ourselves? Do we feel our performance before God somehow makes him love us more? Or is happier with us? Do we feel if we haven't prayed or read our Bible today that somehow that day is not going to go so well because he doesn't love us so much? Do we, and this would be the temptation I might fall into, I'm just admitting you may or may not do, do you look around at the prayer meeting and think who else is there and who isn't there? Oh, at least I'm getting one nod, thank you. <laughs> That's all about performance and adding to our faith. Paul is clear that all these things, although good in themselves, if you read Romans 10 and 11, he doesn't in any way dish his background as being worthless. He just says it doesn't do the job. It doesn't give you true deep down righteousness. It doesn't meet your deepest needs. There's a lovely translation from the message version of verse 9. It says, this is Paul speaking, I don't want some petty inferior ineffective brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a set of rules, I, could, I want to get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ. God's righteousness. That's a great summary. 
So in the next two verses, verses 7 and 8, he talks us through his journey of faith in these four examples. There's a process going on here. So in the first verse he says, Whatever was to my profit, as it were up to that time, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. He's remembering an event on a road to Damascus where he was going to go and persecute the Christians and suddenly, out of a clear blue sky, God meets him. There's a, there's a clap of thunder, there's a bright light, God speaks to him. And at that point he is faced with a decision. Do I carry on the path I'm going or do I follow this person who is now speaking into my life and speaking to me about me? And he chooses to follow Jesus. And in that moment he knows He's giving up everything else. He makes a decision. And it's a decision that every human being has to make. What do you do when faced with Jesus of Nazareth? The carpenter who lived 30 years of ordinary life in this world, then for three amazing years demonstrated that he was so much more than just a carpenter. He was the living son of God, taking human form through his miracles, through his teaching, but ultimately through his sacrifice for us and his resurrection. What are you going to do with that man? It's a decision. There is no middle ground. Either he's a fool and an illusion or a madman, or he is the son of God that he said he was. Paul made that decision. And the answer to that question, of course, determines not just the rest of our life, but eternity. Secondly, as he follows Jesus, he starts to see something in verse 7. He says, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ my Lord. As he starts to follow Jesus, something happens. It's no longer just a decision. A relationship begins. He starts, I think the only way to put it, is to say he starts to fall in love with Jesus. And that relationship starts to motivate fill his life with joy in the middle of suffering give him power to do things he could never otherwise do and enables him to consider everything else a loss in comparison because he's found something, somebody so much more glorious you know it's possible as a Christian to do step one to make the decision but never really move much into step two knowing the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ and can I encourage us this morning to do that? To do what Paul did, to develop a relationship, to recognise that the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus is the most important thing, the most valuable thing, the most valuable experience, whatever, in front of us in our lives. Are you stuck at stage one? Thirdly, in following Jesus... He goes on in the next verse to say, for whose sake I have lost all things. He does go on to lose everything. He loses his social standing, he loses his friends, he probably loses his family as far as we can understand it. He does go on to lose all things. There is a reality to loss and suffering. We're going to come back to that at the end. But then fourthly, in his last verse, he comes back round and realises again how worthless these things were anyway. In comparison with Gaining Christ. There's, there's somebody to gain here. There's something to, a gift, something to add to change his life. And he gains Christ and being found in him. That come, becomes 
the sort of climax of all that he's saying. And in comparison, he says everything else is rubbish. There are all sorts of words you can use to translate that. You've probably heard a number of them in previous preachers. But I think probably the most accurate one is this is like filthy rags. Because he's picking up the sense that you get right from Genesis. In Genesis, Adam and Eve, we have this beautiful picture of two people, naked and unashamed. They have nothing to be ashamed about. And therefore they were able to be naked in front of each other. And then as the fall happens, the rebellion against God, the thing that comes in first is shame. And the need to put something on, to clothe us. Whether it's clothes, or whether it's status, or whatever it is, we put things on to hide our shame from each other and possibly even from ourselves. And so he's picking up this theme and he's saying, all our efforts, they're just like filthy, disease-ridden, ragged, dirty rags. Mm -hmm. Throw them away. Take instead the righteousness of Christ and the experience of knowing him. There's nothing to be gained in religion. There's everything to be gained in knowing Christ. And then he goes on to talk about the second trap we can fall into, which is the question I asked at the beginning. Is it possible to love something or somebody too much? And the word we would use here is idolatry. Idolatry is the process of taking good things and making them ultimate things. Of taking something which is good in itself, but making it so important that if we lost it, we would feel our life isn't worth living. That is the heart of adultery. It is something that comes from the human heart. Someone said, the human heart is an idol-making factory. We are very good at this. We are all very good at this. At turning things that are good into ultimate things. This sounds a bit strange to modern ears. Wasn't idolatry something you just read about in the Old Testament? In our secular age, surely we pass beyond these superstitious ideas. Far from it. I think we're the most idolatrous age in history. Because the focus is so much on ourselves. Our identity, our self-esteem, our fulfilment, our happiness. We inevitably produce idols that go on to dominate our lives and our societies. Take an example. Aphrodite is the Greek goddess of beauty and love. She rides rampant through our society, doesn't she? <laughs> if there's no, the money and the time and the effort that is spent on presentation on clothes, on making ourselves look good, even to the extent we judge people by how well they look. That's Aphrodite running rampant. Plastic surgery. Yeah, more is spent on those things than is needed to feed the hungry in the world. Aphrodite is running rampant. And so many other ones as well. An idol is anything more important to us than God. Anything which absorbs our heart and imagination more than God. Anything we seek to give us what really, in the end, only God can give. We end up loving idols. We end up trusting idols to provide something for us. We end up even obeying idols. They change our pattern of behaviour. They capture our imagination. What do you daydream about? We'll give you a good clue. 
as to what idols you may be having in your life at the moment. Or maybe the fear of them, or fear of losing them, can populate our nightmares. Our daydreams and our nightmares. For Paul, being righteous was his idol. If you were a Jew, being righteous was the most important thing you could be. And being seen to be righteous, that's the whole Pharisee thing that Jesus so often came against. So strongly was this thing of, if I behave and look good to everybody else, I'm being righteous. For Paul, that was his idol. I wonder what it is for us. Because these are good things, remember. Maybe family, maybe a successful career and promotion. Maybe wealth and security. Maybe the approval of others, the likes that we get. Maybe it is beauty, or maybe it is brains, relationships, political or social causes. Even helping other people can become an idol. Or as Daniel admitted a few weeks ago, success in ministry and building a church can become an idol. None of us are immune. And of course, idols still have their temples, shopping centres, Instagram, Twitter, beauty parlours. They have their priests, sporting heroes, celebrities, lifestyle gurus, media stars, and they demand sacrifices of time, money and energy, often at the cost of people's health and relationships. Idols run people's lives. And of course, at the end of the day, they never satisfy anyway, do they? I'm sure you've all discovered if there is something like this, you always need a bit more next time to get the same sense of satisfaction. And at the end, they don't produce anything. One of my favourite quotes in life is from Mark Twain, who gave quite a lot of good quotes. And this one is, there are two tragedies in life. One is to lose one's heart's desire. The other is to gain it. Because once you gain it, you realise how empty it is. One of the great values to us of the part of the Bible we call the Old Testament is its central principle is the identification and rejection of idolatry. In its pages, there are stories, examples of every possible counterfeit god and idol, the effect it had on people's lives and how they dealt with it. You can read it all there. Power, relationships, sex, status, wealth. The stories are all there. And they're all about idolatry and how you deal with it. And of course it tells us something else even more important. That allowing idols to have sway in our lives is not just a bad lifestyle choice. It is that, but it's not just a bad lifestyle choice. Much more fundamentally, it is a personal rejection of the one who died and gave his life for us. It is a rebellion against the creator of the universe and the Lord of history. That's more important, actually, even than what happens in our lives. No wonder, in the Old Testament, God is called a jealous God. I may not understand that word. What it means is he loves so passionately that he's jealous for us, that we don't get sidetracked into something that is superficial or harmful for us. He's jealous for us. But he's not jealous just in the Old Testament. James 4 verse 5, the spirit he caused to live in us yearns jealously for us. 
God cares for you. He's jealous for your and my wholehearted worship because he knows that's for our good and it's for his glory. Hebrews 12, 36. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. Let us worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. I think, at least for me, maybe for many of us, getting a greater sense of reverence and awe for who God is would actually help me in, in dealing with idols. I think our society really makes that hard at the moment. And our culture and what's going on, it, it distorts, it makes God look so small. And yet if we come to a place of real reverence and awe, it's enormously powerful. And the good effect it has on our lives as well as glorifying him. Paul's answer to escaping idol worship comes in these last couple of verses. <laughs> because for Paul, this is all about knowing and treasuring Christ. Just listen as all the phrases he uses. He rejoices in Christ. He glories in Christ. He wants to know Christ. He gains Christ. He wants to be found in Christ. He wants to make Christ his own. And he wants to obtain the price of Christ in the last day. It's like a wonderful waterfall of being in Christ. Falling over us. Drenching us. I'm just going to read it again. You might want to put your hands out and just receive some of the glory of, of this wonderful relationship of knowing Jesus, of rejoicing in Christ, glorying in Christ, knowing Christ, gaining him, being found in Christ, making Christ our own and obtaining the prize of Christ in the last day. Preachers often highlight the importance of whatever they're preaching. You may have noticed this. And whatever they're preaching, this is the most important thing. And I have a lot of sympathy as a preacher for this, because as you get into scripture, it gets hold of you and it stirs you and you do preach it. Uh, but I've got Piper on my side here when I say, this is a really good one. And what he says, nothing in all church life is more important than this, that we treasure Christ together. Amen. Nothing is more important in all church life than we treasure Christ together. In our Sundays as we're doing, in our prayer meetings, in our friendships, treasuring Christ together. In our outreach to the world, it's about treasuring Christ. In our ministry to the poor, in our Telos groups and community groups. Let's treasure Christ together. And then finally in verse 10, Paul ends on a thoughtful, even puzzling note. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. What's that about? He's talking about resurrection, power and blessing. And he's talking about suffering and death. Often we see those two as opposites. But to him they clearly weren't. He knew what it was to daily carry his cross. 
as Jesus called us to do, while knowing the power of the resurrection. Grief and glory often go together. In fact, I would say in our life, some of the times we've known God most clearly have been the times of greatest grief. And we will look more at that next week. We'll start to pick this up and unpack this. Grief and glory, resurrection and suffering. And then lead on to more how we can follow this example of Paul of knowing Christ. So that's a nice little uh, cliff edge for you as an encouragement for coming back next week. I'm just going to end with a verse from 1 John. John was an amazing guy, closest disciple to Jesus, lived probably longest of all the apostles. At the end of his life, he wrote this letter, 1 John. It's a beautiful letter. It's full of love of God, how we love God, how he loves us. Um, if, if you haven't read it recently, do read it. But most of us don't remember what his last verse is. And I'm just going to read the last verse. This is his final, coming towards the end of his life, this is his final encouragement and piece of advice and challenge to all the people who he's known and loved all those years. He simply says, Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. He thought that was the most important thing to say. Can I say it to us today? Dear brothers and sisters, let us keep ourselves from idols. We're going to respond in a minute by, um, I can't say singing, but by, by listening to or humming or saying in Christ alone, because there probably is no better song to declare and to respond to wanting to know him more. But just before that, Daniel's going to lead us in remembering and treasuring Christ through breaking bread together.